If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar. The awful roar. The awful roar of its, its many waters. waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it, it may, may be, be both, both moral, moral and physical. physical. But it must be. It must be a struggle. But it must be a struggle. No struggle. No, no progress. progress. Frederick Douglass, orator and abolitionist a man who needs no introduction. He teaches us that every real gain in the history of human progress has been born of earnest struggle. This show is devoted to celebrating his life, but it's also devoted to taking a hard look at the state of our own earnest struggle for racial equality and human liberation. Coming up, what would Douglas say about today's struggle for immigrant rights and the undocumented people who make our restaurants, farms, dairies, and country run. We'll talk with Brown University professor Juliet Hooker about Douglas's writings on migration and Latin America. And Douglas says, no, we have to be open to immigrants of all kinds. We'll hear from New York City Council member Jumani Williams on the relevance of Douglas's work to today's struggle for social justice. These folks weren't coming in and writing letters asking. Frederick Douglass was a revolutionary. And we'll speak to Carly Fox about the challenges facing undocumented immigrants in our own neck of the woods. Immigrants are paying the price, and all of us are accomplices in this. All that and more on this episode of Our Earnest Struggle. We begin today's show with a discussion on Frederick Douglass and the Americas. Juliet Hooker is a professor of political science at Brown University, and she's the author of a recent book called Theorizing Race in the Americas. In it, she explores Douglas's thinking on Nicaragua, Haiti, and neighboring Santo Domingo, now the Dominican Republic. Juliet joined me by phone from Providence, Rhode Island. I began our conversation by asking why she decided to focus on what she calls the hemispheric Douglas. This was an important framing for me, and I arrived at it because, you know, the book is trying to make a case that thinkers in both Americas are looking to the other America as they develop and shape their racial ideas. And so instead of looking at Douglas as somebody who was simply looking at questions about slavery and abolition in the United States, taking his engagement with the Caribbean and Central America as a point of departure for my reading of Douglas was a way of of, of putting those two aspects of his thought in conversation, the writings on the U.S. and then the writings that look at the rest of the Americas. I want to turn to some of those materials that you bring out in your book when you take us to 1852. Five years after Douglas moves to Rochester, there's a debate happening in the pages of his newspaper that centers on Central America and specifically uh, Nicaragua and what was at the time the Mosquito Kingdom. You write that many of the African-American contributors to his paper found evidence there that both multiracial democracy and black self-government were possible. Can you fill us in on what was going on in these countries uh, that so captured their political imagination? So one of the things that I think is, is amazing about this moment, right, is picturing Douglas in Rochester thinking about the Mosquito Kingdom in Nicaragua. And if you look at the pages of the newspaper in the 1850s, you see this engagement with the Mosquito Kingdom and with Nicaragua, which African Americans are seeing as a space of refuge from what is, you know, uh, a very bleak moment in the United States. So, you know, of course, Nicaragua... Um, was a Spanish colony and had African um, slavery. And so when it becomes independent, you have a set of uh, folks who are of African descent who actually become part of the, um, the government in Nicaragua, and specifically in 1852, because the Nicaraguan uh, slavery was banned in Nicaragua at the moment of independence. It didn't mean, of course, that there weren't racial divisions but one of the pieces that I write about in the book is a review of a travel book that's written um, by an envoy 
Ephraim Squire, who goes to Nicaragua and writes this book about his travels there, and the book is reviewed by McKean Smith. And one of the things that McKean Smith, you know, focuses on is the fact that the foreign secretary for Nicaragua at the time was a black man, right? Um, and he, this man, Sebastián Salinas, is, um, is described by Justin Wolf, who has written about um, some of these figures as part of this, this group of mulatto liberals from León, a city in Nicaragua, who become prominent in the Nicaraguan government at this time. Meanwhile, on the other side of Nicaragua, um, what was then the Mosquito Kingdom, which has been a British protectorate, you have indigenous presence coupled with the presence of maroon communities of escaped Africans who had formed their own communities and who had been able to retain a large um, measure of autonomy under the protection of the British. So the Mosquito Kingdom is ruled by a... Um, a mosquito king who is ostensibly right indigenous, but because of intermixture between the mosquito and um, these African um, arrivals, the mosquito and the mosquito king are actually pretty quote unquote black looking, right? So when McCune Smith looks at the mosquito kingdom, he and other African Americans see a place, and this is reflected in the letters written by. Um, migrants to San Juan del Norte, which is, or Great Town, which was the, the port um, on the Mosquito Kingdom, who talked about being in a space where there is a colored king, right, they use the word colored, where the police are colored, right, where the people in charge are not simply white. This for them, right, is striking at a moment in which in the U.S., Slavery is still the law of the land. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what kind of movement existed towards emigration by African-Americans to Central America? And, and where did Douglas stand on that question? Right. So there's a, a big debate among African-Americans at this time about the question of immigration. And Douglas was generally seen as somebody who opposed African-American immigration because he thought that they needed to, to stay and essentially fight in the U.S. for full citizenship there. Um, Delaney, Martin Delaney, is someone who, of course, is an advocate of, of immigration, and he writes a book that identifies Central America and Nicaragua as one of the places for um, African-Americans to emigrate to. So in Douglas's paper at this time, you find, you know, these letters from these African-American migrants who go to Greytown, um, San Juan del Norte. They go there seeking, you know, um, escape from slavery, seeking, you know, a place where they can find greater equality. And so I argue that in this moment, we can read Douglas as having actually a different position than he than he did previously, and that he's actually, in a close way, supporting immigration because, right, as editor of the paper, he chooses what to print. So even though he himself doesn't write the articles supporting immigration, he's making a choice to odd in his paper print these letters from African Americans who have immigrated to Nicaragua and are telling their stories of what it's like to live there. You note in your book, though, that he does publish uh, some accounts by people like James Starkey who present a, a much different view of what reality was like on the ground uh, at the time in Central America. Right, absolutely. I mean, you know, the paradox of slavery had been um, abolished earlier than it was in the U.S., and you didn't have racially coded legal barriers to participation but it was still um, a racially ordered society. They were existing within the context of both global ideas and global practices of white supremacy. So when, in Starkey's letter, right, it's fascinating precisely because he writes about going to Greytown and looking for a space where he can essentially be free. And then he finds he, you know, he goes to an establishment with two white friends and he is denied service. They're denied service together. And the irony is that the owner of the establishment was an African-American migrant. And so he rightly points out, he says, why are we transplanting these, this mentality of slavery from the U.S. to the space? But the reality is you also have white migrants from the South who are also trying to, to make these spaces recreate the kind of 
racial hierarchies that you have in the U.S. So one of the, you know, one of the incidents that's recounted in Douglas's paper at this time is this election in which the, the white cotton um, ticket tries to run on a platform of not allowing local people of color and immigrants from participating in government. And they're defeated by an alliance of precisely those people who come together in order to, to say, we're not going to allow you to make that, um, that move. It's a really fascinating history that, that really comes alive uh, in your book. I wanted to transition and talk a little bit about Haiti, the country that President Trump back in January reportedly referred to as an s-hole whose people were unwelcome in the U.S. How was Haiti talked about in Douglas's day? And as the world's first black republic, what did it represent to people like Douglas uh, himself, especially in the years leading up to the Civil War? So Haiti was actually enormously uh, significant prior to the Civil War because it became a, you know, a kind of trope that was referred to both um, in the um, in debates about abolition, um, both in the U.S. and in Latin America. So, right, so those who... Um, who defended slavery, right, would argue that, you know, this is what happens when you liberate black people from slavery, that they will, you know, they will take revenge on whites and they will fall into savagery and violence. While, of course, overlooking that the reason for the violence was the need to actually win their freedom and independence from um, from France and, and, and slavery. Um, so... So that's one of the depictions. And so Douglas, in contrast, and I think many African Americans in this period see Haiti very differently. He sees Haiti as this example of black self-government. He calls it at one at one point, he says, it is a city on a hill whose whose light has been hid, right, by these dominant representations of those who oppose abolition. So for Douglas and other African Americans, Haiti represents a space of freedom, both of black freedom where um, previously enslaved people fought for their freedom, and also an example of sort of black capacity, right? The capacity to essentially run a country. Following the U.S. Civil War and during Reconstruction, Douglas's views, uh, or at least the way he speaks about the Caribbean, shifts somewhat. You show how, in some cases, he even adopts a more paternalistic position relative to some Caribbean countries, advocating, for example, uh, the annexation of Santo Domingo as part of a U.S.-led civilizing project. Can you, can you talk about um, the shift and, and what was at stake for Douglas in, in advocating for annexation? So this is, um, you know, this is a troubling moment in, in Douglas's career, right, where he seems to wholeheartedly endorse, um, you know, a U.S. annexationist project that would take over Santo Domingo and expand the U.S. into Latin America. But if we look more deeply at the reasons why Douglas supports annexation, prior to the Civil War, those who supported annexation were often Southerners who wanted to increase the number of slave states. At that point, Douglas was against annexation because he didn't want to expand Slavery. After the Civil War, he changes his mind, and during the Reconstruction, he sees the U.S. as a space where you have um, the possibility of creating a true multiracial democracy, and he thinks that adding Latin Americans to that space, and he, of course, reads um, uh, the inhabitants of Santo Domingo as black, he says, Adding a black sister to Massachusetts will, you know, improve, will be beneficial both for the people of Santo Domingo, but also for the United States. So, in effect, he sees this as a way of kind of decentering the whiteness uh, of the United States, right? But how did some of his Latin American contemporaries see this? You mentioned in your book, for example, uh, the Cuban nationalist Jose Marti, uh, while he's in the U.S. drumming up support for another armed independence struggle against the Spanish, uh, he was saying some critical things about Douglas's role in the region. What was he saying exactly, and uh, to what extent was his view representative of Latin American intellectuals more generally? So, uh, Marti is 
very critical of Douglas in a letter that talked about um, the attempt to annex Santo Domingo in the 1870s and then later this dispute over the Port of Samaná in, in the 1890s. And he says, you know, the mulatto Douglas who has, you know, rented out his old age. So essentially he sees him as this, you know, this person who has allowed himself to be used by larger political parties um, in the United States and who has become a kind of tool of, you know, of the U.S.'s imperial um, ambition. Now, the irony of that is that in the U.S. press, Douglas is, particularly in the incident in the 1890s, is accused of precisely the opposite. He's accused of being, um, you know, too sympathetic to Haiti because of his racial solidarity with the black republic. So there's an interesting way in which for Marti, right, Douglas is whitened because of his U.S. citizenship, whereas in the U.S. press, he's, you know, he's blackened because he can't defend U.S. interests because he's black. Now, um, I think there is definitely a sort of strain of folks who, like Marti, have an anti-imperial critique of the U.S., who critique um, Douglas's support for annexation. Um, in the 1870s. But, you know, the interesting thing is that Haitians are actually, um, they admire Douglas, and um, they see him as somebody who is sympathetic to their cause. So they will later ask him, for example, um, um, at the, um, the World Fair in Chicago, they ask him to organize the Haitian exhibit, and they write about him very fondly. We're speaking with Juliet Hooker, professor of political science at Brown University about Frederick Douglass and the Americas. In the second part of our conversation, we'll talk about Douglass's full-throated defense of migration as a universal human right, and we'll talk about how his ideas speak to our current moment. So stay with us. My earliest connection with the name Frederick Douglass, I'm still in a crib. Over this crib is a framed image called Beacon Light, and there's an inset, two inset pictures. Dr. David Anderson. Well, son, that one there is, that's Paul Lawrence Dunbar. He's a poet, and he blah, blah, blah. But who this one with all them white curls there? Oh, son, that's, that's one of the great leaders of the world, Frederick Douglass. This was inside your, your family house? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. In, in Cincinnati, you said? That's right, 1935. Oh. I'm, I'm too old to be in I want a big boy's bed, Daddy. Well, son, I haven't got the money. We just moved to this place. And I had to understand that it was took a lot of sacrifice to move to this place. Yeah, he, he was right. I mean, he, you know, he was a custodian at the post office annex. He worked overnight, 10 to 7 or 8 in the morning, sweeping the floors and wiping off cases and walking home in the dark because we had moved to this new place, which had indoor plumbing. You're listening to Our Earnest Struggle. I have that print today. I've told each of my three children about that episode. In part two of my conversation with Professor Juliet Hooker, we talk about the relevance of Frederick Douglass's thinking to our own time. So Juliet, can you talk about Douglass's vision for what he called a composite nationality and what role he saw migration playing in making that vision a reality? He writes a speech on what he calls the composite nationality that he thinks the U.S. is moving towards and should foster in the 1870s. And in it, he explicitly argues in favor of this idea that there is a human right to migration. He's writing against, you know, folks who are arguing um, against, for example, U.S. expansion to Latin America and against um, non-white immigration by arguing that the U.S. should be preserved as a kind of white country, a kind of white space, and instead arguing, for example, for, um, you know, uh, removal, for example, of African Americans to Africa or to Latin America, what they see as these kind of darker spaces. So it's kind of a vision of a Jim Crow continent um, or world, if you will. And Douglas is absolutely against that. And so he says, you know, everyone has the right to move 
in search of better of a better life. And that is a human right. It's not tied to, you know, no one all men have it by virtue essentially of being human. And so there's a there's something really interesting there where I think we see Douglas articulating two important things that have relevance for a present moment. One of them is this idea that the U.S. has something to gain by embracing diversity, right? So he says in that speech, for example, not only talks about, you know, the situation of African Americans, he also talks about embracing Asian immigration, right? Because this is a time when you're starting to see critiques of Chinese immigration and, and, and other um, immigration to um, California, you know, um, during the gold rush, et cetera. And, and Douglas says, no, we have to be open to immigrants of all kinds, and that this is the core of, of, of what makes the U.S. what it is and what, would, what is, you know, the foundation of a U.S. tradition that can be embraced. And then the other thing I think that's striking about Douglas's articulation of this idea of a human right to migration and of what it would mean to decenter whiteness within U.S. democracy and make it truly uh, multiracial and multicultural is that it's an example of, of a kind of cosmopolitanism from below, right? A vision of not bound by sort of strict um, national allegiances, but a kind of very cosmopolitan vision of, of how we should think about immigration, how we should think about um, U.S. democracy. One of the most provocative claims you make in your book uh, is that today's dreamers and undocumented activists are akin in some way to the fugitive Douglas. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so I think, you know, what it's interesting to think about Douglas at this moment because it seems unlikely that a 19th century thinker would have anything to tell us about or current debates about immigration, but I think that's, that's what's so great about focusing on the hemispheric Douglas because it allows us to see that actually he has a lot to say. And what he, what he is saying in the 1870s is that the U.S. needs to be open to immigration, that this will make the U.S. a better country, right? And so he says, um, you know, he says in the, in the composite nationality speech, he says, for those who would ask, would you make them citizens? And he says, I would, right? So it's a kind of full-throated defense of immigration and of the, you know, what it is that immigrants can do for the United States. And I mention the dreamers in particular because I think not only, right, are they coming from Latin America, but also they have the same kind of precarious status, right, that fugitives, from slavery um, had during um, the period prior to the Civil War, right? So I think Douglas would feel a certain kind of kinship with them because he himself was a fugitive slave who was in this sort of in-between position and not really being a citizen, but obviously becoming a very prominent public figure who's advocating for the rights of, um, of an important group of people within the United States. So I think this is what I mean by saying that that one of the things that we need to be open to is to the fact that sometimes it is people who, you know, might not be able to vote, who can do, still make an enormous impact on the country and help make it more truly democratic. I don't know if you'd agree, but my sense is that we tend to celebrate Douglas less as a theorist of fugitivity, evasion, maroonage, um, spilling the master's butter, right? Um, and more as a theorist of direct confrontation with power, of liberatory struggle. Think of his account of the fight with the slave breaker Covey, uh, in which manly confrontation uh, is what kind of irreversibly flips the switch in his head, uh, making him free in spirit, uh, if not in the eyes of the law. So. Do we have something of a selective memory here by remembering one Douglas and not the other? Um, and if so, what do you think accounts for that selective memory? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. So I think um, I think we do have a selective memory of Douglas. And, and, and one thing I think that actually plays into that is what texts of his we choose to read. There's a way in which focusing on, on his autobiographies gives us, you know, and not his speeches or not his his journalistic um, work gives us a much more reduced picture of Douglas's interests. And also, depending on which autobiography, right, the one that's most widely read is the original one, which he publishes in 1845, and he's in his 20s, right? So 
it's the least comprehensive. And Douglas changes, right, his account of certain certain things, right? So the, you know, the sort of confrontation with Kobe, actually, as Robert Gooding Williams has argued in his, um, in a book on Du Bois, in which he talks about, about Douglas, it becomes a much more communal affair where, where he's helped by other slaves and where they play key roles in his confrontation. It's less of this kind of heroic individual moment. Um, and so I think that's part of it, but I also, I do want to say that I think by doing so, we also miss also the fugitive dimensions of, of, of Douglas, right? Because the narrative stops at the moment in which he essentially becomes, you know, he gains his freedom. Whereas once you read the second and the third autobiography, we get Douglas's life um, after he leaves the South. And we see the sort of precariousness of his freedom in the North, right? He has to leave the U.S. at one point and go on um, a speaking tour in Great Britain because folks are afraid that with his newfound notoriety as a, as a public speaker in, in favor of abolition that his old owners will try to, um, to recapture him. And he is not legally, he is legally still owned by, the, you know, by someone. And so um, he actually ends up, his freedom is purchased for him and he, and that's how he gains a sort of measure of stability. But I think that fact in itself is something that we, we need to, to pay more attention to. What must it have been like, even for one of the most famous, um, you know, black abolitionists, um, one of those who had escaped slavery, to still be at the mercy of slavery, right? Yeah, and, and of course, one of the fugitive activities uh, that he he engaged in here in Rochester um, was, of course, uh, having a station on the Underground Railroad, right? Um, and yet, you know, that's a form of resistance that we tend to associate with Harriet Tubman, with mm-hmm. women, um, whereas the kind of masculine uh, values of confrontation um, with authority we attribute to Douglas. Yeah, thinking about the Underground rail, Railroad and his role in that, I think, is fascinating, because Douglas actually says, you know, he has moments when he writes that he doesn't understand why people um, continue to write about the Underground Railroad and to talk about, tell the stories of how they escaped. And he, he says, you know, there's nothing underground about it. We're all, you know, um, talking publicly about it. And also, we're, if, we, if we detail one manner of escape, we're closing that off as an avenue for other people. So I think those uh, those comments speak precisely to your point, right? That by its nature, the, these kind of fugitive practices, such as escape, actually make it difficult for us to remember them because they require secrecy and concealment. If he were around today, where might Douglas stand on immigration reform? Well, I think it's pretty clear that Douglas would would absolutely be in support of the Dreamers, you know, of granting them a tax citizenship and would support the sanctuary movement, right? Because this is this is the the, the contemporary um, analogy to the Underground Railroad. I think he would absolutely say this is where the work is of, of, of making U.S. democracy function as it should. I think he would also be against this idea that we should, you know, that certain immigrants from certain countries are unwelcome and we should look particularly for immigrants from, say, Norway, or, um, you know, so that white Europeans would be the most desired immigrants. I think he would reject that vision of the United States. Um, and, and I, you know, just as he would reject the sort of resurgent white nationalism, I think he would say, you know, this kind of anti-immigrant position is really related to the domestic anti-blackness and anti-Semitism that is really um, concerned with keeping the U.S. as some sort of, you know, white-centered space. I think he would say, you know, the U.S. would be at its best the more we can abandon that vision and the more we can decenter whiteness within U.S. democracy. So the great thing about it is that there's so much to learn from Douglas, actually, about this particular moment we're living in. Juliet Hooker is a professor of political science at Brown University. Juliet, thanks so much again for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. In our next segment, we hear from New York City Council member Jumani Williams. 
We caught up with him in the WXIR studios on January 26th, not long after he was arrested for blocking a vehicle being used to deport prominent immigrant activist Ravi Ragbir. Williams was in Rochester meeting with community members after announcing his plan to run for lieutenant governor of New York State. We talked about activism, electoral politics, and immigration. But I began by asking him to read a favorite Frederick Douglass quote. Oh, yeah, I like this one. Well, I knew the top one, which is everybody knows, if there's no struggle, there's no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one or maybe a physical one or it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. That's awesome. You are no stranger to struggle, both moral and physical. Um, how, how do you understand those words resonating uh, today? It's always amazing to me that I believe people just kind of rewrite history, rewrite people that they want to celebrate kind of in their paradigm. And so they lift up people like Frederick Douglass. They lift up people like Martin Luther King as American heroes who I've had people tweet at me like these folks wouldn't be proud of you. These folks don't want you doing what you're doing. And I'm like, you don't you don't know these folks. <laughs> you should probably just look up what what they did. Like Frederick Douglass was a revolutionary. But these folks weren't coming in and writing letters asking uh, for what they deserved. They were demanding it. And you can only do that by agitation. You can only do that by disrupting the status quo. Um, that's the only possible way that's ever happened in this country or any part of the world. And so when I listen to people talking about nonviolent protests, not to be confused with peaceful protests, because I think you need to disturb the peace, <laughs> but I, I am a fan of nonviolent protests. Um, people have objection to it. And they, oh, not here, not now. But I recently was involved with a protest where we were blocking a van being used to help uh, deport someone. People were saying, why are we there? And it was like, it was right before Martin Luther King Day. I'm like, if you don't understand why we were there, you shouldn't let uh, Martin Luther King come out of your mouth. And I would say the same thing about Frederick Douglass. Don't celebrate this man if you're bemoaning folks who are fighting for the same things uh, in a different way and slightly different, but in the same spectrum that they were fighting for back then. Yeah, and I, I want to get into the, some of the backstory of this protest that you're describing for our listeners who might not be familiar with it. A gentleman by the name of Ravi Ragbert, who I've known uh, for about six years now, I actually met him when he asked me to participate in a hunger strike, uh, um, well, it was a fast, a hunger fast for three days on immigrants' rights. He created something called a New Sanctuary Coalition uh, with a gentleman by the name of Jean Montreval. Um, unfortunately, Jean Montreval was already deported. Uh, that was They didn't even let him get to his check-in. They came to his home. And we believe they've been targeted because they've been leaders in the movement. Uh, of course, there is a history, um, but uh, everybody has paid their uh, dues to society, and there were not violent crimes. They weren't rapes and murders that the orange man is talking about. Um, and uh, he had a normal check-in. We were hoping to come out. He didn't. Uh, and I think we have a moral obligation to prevent these immoral uh, deportations. And so long story short, they tried to take him out by ambulance and some of us uh, engaged in nonviolent protests. The response was swift and heavy, like heavier than anything I'd ever experienced. I got tossed up and down uh, the street and so did my colleague, Udonis Rodriguez. <laughs> Arrested. Come give me some words. Come on, Robbie. I'm thankful we're there because we're able to lift up both Robbie's story and uh, Gene's story. I mean, it's quite clear there's a target on uh, immigrants, black and brown, not so much from Norway. Uh, so we listened to the, to the president's comments um, and we, it's clear, you, you can't disconnect his comments to the policies, not just on immigration, but on most of the things that he does and who is directed to. And the truth of the matter is, we can't even deport all these folks if we wanted to. We just need to create a second tier of citizens to support everybody else. And um, that's kind of what, it's kind of what we've done in this country, right? So whether it was slavery, you mentioned the Chinese immigrants, they were supposed to get, be able to stay here after they uh, built the railroads. We kind of lie to them. Uh, we, we, we do that often. We create second tier. Like, you know, uh, the restaurant industry itself, just by itself, would crumble if they try to deport um, undocumented uh, residents. And, you know, this hits home. I represent a large uh, amount of Haitians, a large amount of people from Caribbean. Both my parents, parents immigrated from Grenada 
Uh, my brother was undocumented for some time, and I didn't even know. Many of us didn't know. So this hits home. Um, this country, obviously, I mean, this, it's cliche. Obviously, we're immigrants. But more than that, it is the fabric of this country. So it is laughable uh, that some people are actually believing that if you get rid of these folks, some the country is better. But this has been happening since the beginning. You, you create a sep- you create an other. And so uh, that's what happened when they created whiteness, right? So that you can not be, at least you're not them. <laughs> at least you're not black. At least you're not slaves. And then you just create others and they become the folks you don't want to be. And then they support, I guess, the real citizens of the country. Uh, but that's always been part of our history. But thankfully, there have been people who have pushed back. So you you both uh, endorse kind of working within the system and you are um, not afraid to take a stand against uh, things that might be legal but are clearly uh, immoral, right? So- I call myself an activist elected official. Uh, I think I'm quite productive in it. Uh, 51 council members in my, uh, in my council. I was listed as the second most productive uh, outside of the speaker. Uh, so I'm very proud of that. But I am exploring a run for lieutenant governor. Um, you know, I always want to remind people that the situation, obviously, the Orange Man has created is horrible. Uh, but he didn't create it. Uh, there have been lots of folks, including Democrats, who have laid fertile ground uh, for this to take part. I mean, this state is Democrat. Most cities are run by Democrats. The governor has been for a while Democrat. And so and you have to push that as well. And so I am exploring this uh, lieutenant governor run. And I'm just... It's been amazingly, the response has been even more positive than I thought. I think people have been hungry uh, for something because uh, my, my belief is our current governor has tested the political winds and uh, it's blowing a certain way, progressive. And so now he's put on his progressive coat that he can take off whenever he wants. And I think those of us who uh, are real and that, that who have helped create those political winds really need to be there uh, to push him, to uh, pull his coattails, to say uh, the emperor has no clothes. Uh, I think people don't even know who the lieutenant governor is. I have a new vision for that uh, for that position. I want to be the people's lieutenant governor. I want to use it to advocate for public issues that aren't being heard or people are being misled. So we have huge problems. There are solutions, but we need people who are bold enough to push forward. Um, Cuomo is saying some good things now. That's only because we've pushed him. I think we need to have a lieutenant get governor in there to hold his coattails. City Council Member Jumani Williams from New York City representing Brooklyn. Thanks so much for being with us here at RCTV WXIR in Rochester. Thank you. Keep resisting. For our last segment on today's show, we speak with Carly Fox, a Rochester-based organizer with the Worker Justice Center of New York. We talk about the challenges currently facing undocumented workers in rural New York. We talk about the sanctuary movement and the legacy of Frederick Douglass. Why don't you tell us what a typical day uh, of advocacy work looks like for you, Carla? There is no typical day. <laughs> Every day is different. I joined the Worker Justice Center six years ago, and uh, throughout those six years, there's been a lot of different iterations of my responsibilities. I did a lot more outreach in the first couple years. I visited hundreds and hundreds of workers on two hours in every direction from Rochester, spanning different agricultural industries. So apple pickers, dairy workers, grapes, onions, cabbage. Um, These are populations of workers who live very isolated. So it requires that us as advocates of farm workers really, nobody can kind of get to us. We have to go out and do that door knocking and reach out. And so we do a lot of the trainings in the homes and the trailers and meet them where they're at. How many agricultural workers in New York State are immigrants? And do we know how many roughly uh, are undocumented? It's estimated that there's between 60 and 80,000 agricultural workers in New York State. And some of those are seasonal. Some of those are permanent where they're working in dairies or the year-round support on farms with seasonal crops. The large majority are from Mexico. And as you'd imagine, and then we have a growing number of workers coming up from Guatemala. You'll have some other Central American countries in in there as well, primarily El Salvador or Honduras. There's a decreasing number of Haitian workers. There were more in the 80s. There's a lot of seasonal workers who come from Jamaica who are um, been coming for more than a decade or two. You know, my guess would be that upwards of 90% are probably non-citizens non-American citizens. And then that percentage would be divided in between guest workers and then undocumented workers. The guest workers are mostly in seasonal 
farms because dairy farms are year-round. They're not eligible to get guest workers. One of the things that many Americans don't necessarily recognize uh, is the role that U.S. foreign policy in the hemisphere has played uh, in accelerating immigration to the U.S., um, especially from the, some of the countries that you mentioned. Can you fill in just you know, very briefly some of that mm-hmm. uh, geopolitical, historical context? So the fact that folks are coming up, crossing a border is you know, really about starvation, which is a result of a long history of U.S. United States treating Latin America as our backyard, our territory, and our hemisphere, and that we would decide what happens in countries. We've slowly bought off and put incredible pressure on um, a country at this point to adopt neoliberal policies. This is the more modern era imperialism that we're we're engaging in. And so when NAFTA passed, we we you know pitched it as a policy that. Mexico would benefit from, but we really ultimately displaced tons of agricultural workers who then sought to work up here where there was plenty of jobs and folks who wanted to hire them. And so these are the very workers who are uh, in today's political discourse being vilified, being criminalized, being slandered, right? Make no mistake. You know, Trump has a rhetoric that he wants to deport all these foreigners and immigrants, but at the same time, he benefited from H-2A guest workers and H-2B workers in his resorts. Cost of things are significantly less when you have an, a vulnerable workforce. So who are some of the people um, that Immigration Customs Enforcement have been targeting um, for deportation now? Is it just uh, these these so-called gang members, uh, violent criminals? Um, who Who's getting caught up in this deportation net? Well, the criminal category that the administration refers to is includes people who have come back a second time. So if you came off, over and you were deported and then you come back, that's called a criminal reentry and you're charged in, with a federal um, crime for that. And that's a huge number of the people who have been called criminals are fall in that category. Another sort of innocuous category of crime is using a social security number to work. So you're here and you're not going to sit around and you can't sit around. So folks are working and they're working hard and they have to have some sort of a social security number. And so that uh, makes them vulnerable to having charges for you know fraud. But no, um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement has largely been uh, looking for folks who might have overstayed their visa, who were ordered deported but might not have ever proved that they left the country. And then they're picking up anyone who they call collateral damage who they find on their way. The most typical way folks get triggered into detention and then eventual deportation in our region is collaboration between our local law enforcement, so the local cops. We'll call Border Patrol during a routine traffic stop, minor infraction, a seatbelt. So that's how a lot of people get turned over, and that's that predates this administration. That's been something we've been struggling with for a really long time. So why don't uh, undocumented folks normalize their status? I mean, this is a question that I think people right. still ask. Why don't you just do it by the books? Because there is no law that allows that to happen. You know, there's some small categories where you might be able to. Um, they're so narrow and so hard and so specific that the large majority of the people who are here unauthorized have no way to legally remedy. And if you're in Mexico and you want to come legally to the United States, there's very few options for that as well. You have to be very rich to prove that you would, you know, to, in order to be able to get a visitor visa. And the guest worker visas are also few and far between, really hard. And honestly, that's not the nation we want to grow. We want to grow a nation that has families here and are integrated into the community. So this guest worker model is very problematic and troublesome that we are just importing nation, you know, groups of hands and not groups of families. And we're importing just the, the labor, but not sort of a community. So one of the questions I have is about the designation of a sanctuary city. What does this mean in practice? And does it extend to these rural agricultural uh, workers that, that you've been talking to us about? When Trump won, a lot of cities where there was sort of a more progressive political climate started passing laws um, either through city council or their police departments or executive orders where, just like our attorney general, Eric Schneiderman, um, recommended, what that means is that you have a government that's pledging to govern at the local level and not integrate necessarily everything with federal officials. There's no obligation for local law enforcement to actively look for immigrants and turn them over to Border Patrol or ICE. Um, that's something that a sheriff or 
city police department can decide that they want to do. I think some of these rural communities re- like lean on Border Patrol to come in as an interpreter. So they don't, they're actually violating language access laws because they don't have their own internal language line or bilingual officers. So they call Border Patrol as their interpreter. And they just say, oh, we're just, we just use them as interpreters. But that's a pretty expensive interpreter for taxpayers, though. They have to call Border Patrol and have them come an hour out from Rochester just to interpret at the side of the road. Well, we know what the real reason is that they're doing that. But um, what are the costs to a society to have that kind of level of engagement between law enforcement and Border Patrol? It means that the segment of your population that's undocumented, if they are the victim of a crime, if they witness a crime, they may leave the scene. They may not want to cooperate with law enforcement. The most common example is a domestic violence victim, someone who's, you know, really um, needs to be able to rely on law enforcement for help, may be fearful because that might land them in deportation proceedings. So really to keep communities safe, you want to be engaging in community policing where the all of the people in that community feel free to reach out to law enforcement. What cities have passed sanctuary city resolutions? Rochester and Syracuse, Ithaca, Albany, uh, New York City. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then in the rural counties, we do have some, although I don't like to publicize it too much. They're not popular policies, and I think we win them, and we just keep it quiet because there's a lot of education involved in really having the citizenry understand this is for their own good. Um, but because we're in such a climate of hate right now and scapegoating and targeting, it's really sad that um, it takes a lot for folks to understand why this would be a good policy. I wanted to ask for you to help us put a face and a story um, to these these people who have been so vilified in this political climate. Yeah, there's so many stories. <laughs> there's a woman who called me a couple weeks ago that her husband was picked up and he was leaving for work. There had been ice, unmarked ice cars, um, vehicles observing them for a couple weeks prior. And then she was waiting with her kids to get them on the bus, so she joins him at work like a half an hour later, but on his way to work, they picked him up. And he had prior deportations, so they just took him. And he's now housed at the Allegheny County Jail, which is where folks go when they're U.S. marshaled out to face criminal um, prosecution. So she didn't know where he was. She called me two weeks after to say, can you help me find my husband? I have no idea where he ended up. So we, you know, looked into it and found out. It took a few days and informed. And then, and then it was a matter of, you know, do you want to be able to talk to him? Let's try to figure out how we can get you a calling card. And then we arranged a visit and we have a rapid response network here in Rochester. So we had a wonderful ally willing to rent a car, drove them all the way down to the border of Pennsylvania and helped for her to be able to see him. But yeah, Dolores's case is, is, is uh, there's just so many heart-wrenching ones. But Dolores was picked up in 2014 driving to church and she didn't have a driver's license, as you may know. There's 12 other states in our country that do permit folks who don't have social security numbers to get them legally, but our state is not one of those. And they claimed to call Border Patrol because they needed an interpreter. But uh, actually, one of her friends came to the scene and was able to speak perfect English, so we knew that it wasn't really for that. And the tricky part about Dolores' situation is she's going to leave a a daughter here who's um, a minor and and be deported, and she has an impeccable record of being here for 15 years, working really hard in agriculture. And so it just feels like we're spitting people out, you know, just, it just feels so ungrateful, you know. Um, This morning it was bitter cold out, and I was freezing, and I was only outside for 10 minutes, and I was thinking about the dairy workers I work with, who, especially the ones who herd the cows, so they're outside, 12-hour shifts in the middle of the night with wind whipping on those hills in rural areas and dealing with an extreme cold that is for often for minimum wage. And I'm thinking the gratitude we show is to make you feel really scared and vulnerable to be picked up by immigration. I mean, the environment, the trauma that people are experiencing, the fear when you leave your house that you might not come back, the inability to get on a Greyhound bus because Border Patrol is at every station along the border. Um, So you can't move. So we're really talking about, you know, freedom of movement and and just basic human rights here, Mm -hmm. which I think draws the parallel to Frederick Douglass. When you read about the Underground Railroad, you think, oh, wow, we, you know, you had to go from one person to the next. You had to be given like transportation by an ally. And that idea of going to pick someone up, driving them from A to B 
it's not like they're being hunted down, but when I'm driving undocumented workers and I've been followed by the police, our rental cars have foreign plates. You're in the rural community with a foreign plate and you get followed. And that's really scary because the consequence for me is I'll get pulled over. Maybe I had a small infraction. I pay it. That's it. The consequence for the passenger could be permanent separation from their children, like what happened to Gilberto. So Gilberto was in a car with a driver who didn't have a seatbelt on. For the driver, it meant a seatbelt infraction. For Gilberto, it means that after 27 years of living in our country and having three U.S. citizen kids, he will permanently be separated from them. Do you think Frederick Douglass would be standing with undocumented people? Do you think he'd be standing with Ravi Ragbir or with Dolores Bustamante, with others? Absolutely. What was really beautiful about Frederick Douglass is that he was such a man before his time, and he saw the importance of intersectionality. And so while he was fighting against brutal forms of racism and slavery, he understood that women's liberation and, and the right for women to vote was, was key to everyone's liberation. And so what I think he would have been you know, saying today is that where all of our liberation is tied up in everyone else's. And so the struggle for women's rights and the struggle for black lives are all connected and that we need to be supporting each other and see how each person's struggle for liberation is all of our struggle for liberation. That was Carly Fox, senior worker advocate for the Worker Justice Center of New York. And that does it for this episode of Our Earnest Struggle. Special thanks to Juliet Hooker, Jumani Williams, and Carly Fox. You can tune in every Saturday at 10 a.m. for the latest episode, 100.9 FM Rochester, or online at 1009wxir.com. You can also catch up on back episodes on our Mixcloud page. Go to mixcloud.com slash 1009wxir. The views expressed on the show don't necessarily reflect the views of the City of Rochester or the partnering organizations of the Re-Energizing Douglas Bicentennial Committee. If you'd like to be a part of future episodes, send us an email at wxirnews at gmail.com. For Rochester Community Media, I'm Darian Lehman.